physicals. We think of doctor's appointments where we're just riding along, and all of a sudden the doctor says, you need to be on guard about this category. Uh, the test results are saying there's concerning levels here and there. You need to beware. You need to take heed. We think of warnings that come physically. We think of warnings in the form of car alarms. Ding, ding, ding. And our consciences are, are seared, in a sense, against the ringing of the bell in the car as we do not quickly buckle up and our grandchildren or our children say, Daddy, are you not going to buckle up? That's what the bell means, warning. You're moving this vehicle into action, into motion, and there are warnings and safety threats upon the road. In every sphere of life, there's the call to beware. There's the call to take heed. There's the call to be on guard, to stand as a watchman, if you will. Fathers, you're called to be the the sheepdogs, if you will, of your homes to be on guard against wolves, both physically and spiritually. We're called to shepherd those that God's given to us. In the life of a church, God gives leadership to be on guard, to watch, to be in, in the context here, as we'll see this morning, against false doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But I just want to remind all of us, we, we recognize this. We recognize that warnings are a part of life. Be careful. Be on guard. Take note of this. Watch for this. And really, we understand that. We're used to that. And and that really doesn't bother us. But somehow, when it comes to the things of the church, the church doesn't like warnings. As disciples of Christ, we regularly are irritated by warnings. And I just want to kind of remind all of us that warnings are a key part of Jesus' teaching ministry. And warnings are a real clear sign of a doctrinally faithful New Testament church. Our fallen nature, our fallen man does not like warnings. It comes instinctively to not like restraints. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told uh, what we cannot do or what to be careful for. We want to eat bluebell ice cream every night, regardless of the effects that the doctor says. You might want to rethink that. We don't like being told what to do. Now, moving from the funny to the more serious here in our text. Here, the warning of Christ is in regards to His disciples as He gives them an instruction, a lesson. The warning of Christ is in regards to the apostate teaching of the day that came in two forms. We introduced it last week. We simply highlighted it, and we'll introduce it again. It's the warning of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you remember, the Pharisees were the more conservative, stringent religionists of the day. They not only believed in the law of God, they they so believed in the law of God that they kept adding to the law of God and added their own laws and found that their laws were superior to God's law. Jesus has already confronted them on this. He's already pulled the mask off on this. And this is also one of the things that in the life of the New Testament church today, we have to be on guard against. Adding to the gospel. Subtracting from the gospel. That's what the Sadducees did. Now I'm using the gospel as a summary to sound doctrine. But it also includes the gospel. That's what the whole argument of Galatians is all about. Where Paul says, don't add anything to the gospel. To add to the gospel is to negate the gospel. And so Paul says to his disciples, really the theme warning of the New Testament and also to the New Testament church is to be on guard against those 
who add to sound doctrine, New Testament doctrine of faith and practice, the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then of the Sadducees, the more liberal religionists of the day, be on guard against those who subtract from the word of God. Be on guard against those who do not take the word of God as truth. Reject that. Anyone who would dilute the truth. Anyone who would come to the word of God and say, well, this isn't what it says it is. It actually means something else. Be, guard, be on guard. Beware about unbelief that comes in the disguise and in the form of religion. Now, Jesus is the master teacher, isn't he? He, he's not afraid to repeat himself. We often are. Preachers are often afraid to repeat themselves lest they become redundant or they seem like they're repeating their notes or that type of thing. But one thing becomes very clear in the teaching of Jesus. He says what he says on the mountaintops and in the valleys, in the boats and on the shore. He says the same things as recorded by the gospel writers in different ways, same thing repeated in different phrases, but the essence of the truth, even sometimes the exact same words, he preaches again and again and again. He's not afraid to repeat himself. Here in our text, he has for the second time told the religious leaders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the only sign that they will ever see from here on is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Second time we saw last week that he tells them this. Peter, writing in his second epistle, tells the church that is scattered abroad, he says, for the second time I'm writing to you of these things. Paul again says, I'm telling you this again. Here we see Jesus giving the same warning to those religious leaders of the day, unafraid to repeat himself. And now notice with me verse 4, by way of introduction, we see his exit. He left them, he turns from them, this dialogue, verses 1 through 4, he turns from them and he departed. I think one of the saddest sights in all the Bible is to see the back of Jesus. And I don't mean in the sense of we're following him, but it's in the sense of he's leaving you. Here in verse 4, we see his exit from these religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He left them and he departed. They see his back and they're not broken, they're not softened, they're not concerned. They're simply plotting in how they can kill Christ. As we've mentioned before, Matthew 16 is a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. This is really kind of, we're right in the middle. This is the dividing line. We see that Jesus is doing some final farewell conversations, final instructions, final chances with people that he will never speak to again. He turns his back on them. He's practicing what he's instructed in, to his disciples in chapters 14 and 15, if you remember when he sent his disciples out, or actually that's in chapter 10, but here in chapters 14 through 15, we see where he returns and finds that these religious leaders have not listened to his instructions. They have not heard or heeded, and so Jesus turns his back in judgment. In fact, Matthew 7, 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn. And tear you into pieces. Here Jesus is following his own instructions that, that he's given to his disciples. In chapter 10, verse 14, when he sent them out two by two, if you remember, he told them, if you go teaching and preaching into the towns and the villages, what do you do if your message is not received? Verse 14 of chapter 10, he says, and whoever will not receive you or hear your words, then you are to depart from that house or that city 
You are to shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Here in our chapter 16, verse 4, we see that Jesus is doing exactly that. He will never again come here except to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. This chapter marks essentially the end of his Galilean ministry. And we're going to see for the next consecutive weeks as we look at the end of chapter 16. These are monumental passages. Next week, he will say, who do you say? He makes it personal. He looks his disciples in the face. He says, I don't care what other men say. Who do you say that I am? Ultimately, he makes it personal. He goes from the macro down to the micro. And he says, who does they say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Who am I in your life? Am I simply a good teacher? Or am I your Lord, your Savior, and your Master? Now, as we look at this text, we're going to outline our thoughts around four brief headings. Number one, we're going to see the counsel that Jesus gives. Number two, the confusion that is expressed by the disciples, the confusion. Number three, the correction. And then lastly, number four, the comprehension or the clarity that they receive. So first of all, I want you to note in our text in verse 5, the counsel that Jesus gives. This is Jesus, the, the ultimate shepherd. First, just read just a moment ago, 1 Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock. Peter. Peter gives instruction to the church. Where did Peter get his instruction to the, to the elders? How does Peter know how to shepherd? How does Peter know how to tell the others how to shepherd? Peter has learned it. 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Here, Peter is being shepherded by the chief shepherd. Verse 5, the counsel that is given. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to bring with them to take bread. So then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see here that Jesus repeats his instruction and he uses some some factors, some prompts to drive his, his message, his warning to his disciples about false doctrine. I just want to remind all of us that the warning to be on guard against false doctrine is not just 2,000 years ago. As, as these disciples have come face to face with these religious leaders, friends, we are to be on guard. We are to be on guard against doctrine that is against the claims of Christ. Doctrine that adds to Doctrine that subtracts from the person and work of Christ. We can say it like this. Every cult, any cult that you can think of, how do you know it's a cult? How do you know that it is something that is a false faith? Simply go to what they believe about the person and work of Christ. What do they believe about Christ? What do they say Christ is? Who He is? Do they take his claims literally as he brings them to us in the gospel records? Or do they add to them or subtract from them? Every cult you can think of, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you can just, we just go through a list. They all add or subtract to the person and work of Christ. Now, Jesus is the master teacher. Notice here in our text, he picks upon a real-life example. They're hungry. There's a scarcity of bread. Our verse tells us, now they had forgotten to take bread. Jesus hears their conversation. He knows their thoughts. In the disciples' haste to cross the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to take and bring bread with them. And so Jesus uses this symbol of bread in his warning. 
He uses the moment. A master teacher is able to take the moment to teach. We see this, and I'm not here to necessarily tell us how to be the master teacher, but that's what we see here in the text. If you're a, a parent or a teacher, just take note of this. It's, it's here in the text. Find the everyday things of the moment to teach your children, to teach the disciples, to teach your class about the truth of Scripture. Here, he uses bread. More specifically, he uses this idea of leaven as an illustration and warning the disciples about the permeating false doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Secondly, in verses 6 and 7, we note the confusion. Now, don't miss this, because the disciples, and yet we try to enter into their mindsets, don't we? They are sitting in a front row seat to all that Christ is doing. They hear His teaching, and we think, oh, to hear His teaching. Oh, to be able to be pastored by Jesus. Oh, to maybe just be able to see a miracle. Well, the disciples, <laughs> they hear it all. They see it all. They're able to have the after-action reports. They're able to break down what happened and get the reaction take of Christ on all of it. And yet they're often operating in a way that is just confusing. They are blind, if you will. It's, they, are, they are disciples who truly believe in Christ, but it's as if they're walking in practical atheism at times. They're confused. Now, unless you and I are too hard on the disciples, just simply look inside your own heart. Do you ever struggle? Do you ever struggle with your faith? Yes, you know things to be true. Yes, you know what Jesus says. Yes, you know what the Word of God says. So why are we struggling? Or let's just get real precise. Why are we sinning? Why do we struggle with faith? Why do we struggle with the claims of discipleship? Well, here Jesus begins to teach them. We see their confusion in verses 6 and 7. Take heed, he says. And be on guard, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reason among themselves, saying, He's correcting us because we have taken no bread. No. It has nothing to do with it. Jesus is not concerned about supper. Jesus can provide supper on the spot. He's proven that. He's not correcting them. He's not admonishing them for not being prepared. He's not correcting them as a, a master chef that says, I can't believe you forgot to bring the ingredients. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is beware. He's using it practical, everyday example. He knows they're hungry. Here's the rumbling of their stomachs and decides to give analogy to the permeating false doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to that of leaven and that of bread. Friends, it's a reminder to us that the carnal man, Paul teaches, the, the natural man does not understand the things of God. You say, well, what's your point? Because these are disciples. Exactly. Listen, as and we are too. One of the reasons we struggle in our sanctification is we are robed and live in this body of unredeemed flesh. And we do not mortify the flesh. We do not put to death Spiritually speaking, the deeds of the flesh, and, and far too often, whether we would ever admit it, we are led not of the Spirit, as Paul says, Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, controlled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Unfortunately, if we're just honest, we're led by the flesh. Now, as we'll come to at the end of the message, if we're always led by the flesh, if the fruit of our life is the flesh, the flesh, the flesh, then friend, you should be concerned. You should examine your heart. It doesn't matter what you say, but if the main dominating current and theme of your life is the flesh and natural reasoning and the works of the flesh, 
then friend, you're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, that is the result of the new birth in the life of the believer. Oh my goodness, what is so frustrating. It's what Paul says in Romans 6 and 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what we're talking about. Do you ever say, oh, wretched man that I am, or oh, wretched female that I am, or oh, wretched child that I am? You get the idea. We get so frustrated with ourselves, as we were just singing about. We long to be like Him. We long to grow like Him. We long to grow like Christ. To see the beauty of our God upon us. His Spirit within us. And yet we grieve the Holy Spirit of God far too often because we walk in the flesh and not in faith. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So the unspiritual do this all the time. That's the hallmark of the unregenerate man. The man that is lost, the man who is not saved, using our religious terms, let's just get real, the man who's not experienced the new birth, of the Holy Spirit of God is a man that is simply dictated by his physical appetites alone. Nicodemus, if you remember, heard in his conversation with Jesus, he heard Jesus giving him a spiritual metaphor. And when Jesus said, you must be born again, what did Nicodemus say? Just think for a second. You don't have to say it out loud. But as Jesus is having a spiritual conversation with him, Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees who came to Jesus by night, is simply thinking physically, carnally. And so he carnalized the new birth by saying, how can a man be entered into his mother's womb a second time? That's not what Jesus is talking about. John chapter 4, John 3, there's Nicodemus. John 4, if you remember the woman at the well, she carnalized the water of salvation with the water at the well. What Jesus is talking about, no, I've come to bring life. A water that satisfies, a salvation that completely changes and transforms that never parches but only satiates and gives life to the fruit of the spirit well the unregenerate man only thinks in this way but here's the problem as disciples of christ we often auto revert back to the patterns of the old man why because we are still in the old man our, flesh, our inner man is made new. Those who walk in newness of life, when we were born again, and when we remember the time or grew in love for Christ, we begin to see, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and I'm undone. And we recognize that the Holy Spirit of God has shown us that we are sinners in, in, under the wrath of a holy God, and that we need to turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ, in Christ alone. That's what we call the new birth. It's a change to never be the same again. Not perfect? No, not at all. But it means the inner man, the spiritual man, is born again. And one day when we die, this body will be glorified to match the reality of what is on the inside. This body is not the last body that we will ever have. Praise the Lord. We'll be glorified. We will know and be known as we are. And yet we will be like him as he, as he is. So Jesus picks up on this lapse of the spiritual discernment and understanding the life of his disciples. It's a reminder to us, Deuteronomy chapter 3, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3, that the instruction is given. Hear the master teacher, behold him work, behold him disciple, behold him teach. Sometimes I think we make it more complicated than what it actually is. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the instruction is given to parents. 
Moses says, These words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children in a formalized way. Sure. In a catechized way. Sure. Includes that. But notice what Moses tells the heads of households. He tells them this. He says, And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. What do you do when you sit in your house? Sometimes we watch the game together. Something comes on the screen that stirs a conversation. And we say, well, you know what? This is a great illustration of what we just heard Sunday from Pastor Lamb. Or, you know, let's turn that off. We're not going to watch that right now because, hey, you know what? Let's talk about this. Friends, they see it. They hear it. It's called when you sit in your house. It's at the dinner table, isn't it? Tell me about your day. What's going on? Well, you're, friend, what, you're not friends with Sally anymore? What's wrong? What's going on there? We start talking about life. We talk drama and conflict and sin and forgiveness. As you sit in your house, as you walk by the way, when you walk by the way, literally, when you're walking into Kroger, and you see someone ask of you, they're in need. It's a teaching moment, isn't it? Every day that we live here and there, as we sit down, as we rise up in our home, out in public, when you rise up, he says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, uh, on your gates. Here, here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus is showing us how to disciple. Jesus is showing us how to teach, and it's, it's in the moment. Now, can I just confess something to you as your pastor? This is, this is hitting me square between the eyes. I would be one who would want to go and do more formal preparing. Now let's set a time, and I'll meet with you at 7. And then at 7, we'll sit down, and I will talk with you. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. What's Jesus doing here? He's just walking. He's living. He's teaching. He's instructing. We've got to move on, but there's so much here. He's following, modeling what Paul tells us to do. Redeem the time because the days are evil. There's a sense of urgency here in this text. As we see in the rest of Matthew 16, Jesus knows his time is short. He's preparing his disciples. He's preparing them for his absence when he returns again to the Father. He will not always be here. So while he's here, ask, talk commune, pray. The time is short. And friends, I would remind all of us, the time is short. We all think we have more time than what we actually have. The clock is ticking. The sands of time, the old hymn says, the sands of time is sinking fast. Ask the Lord to give you a quickening discernment to know how to lead and teach and guide following in his footsteps. Number three, we see in verses 8 through 11 the correction that Jesus gives to his disciples here. Now Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, to his disciples, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the, of the 5,000? Have you already forgotten that? And how many baskets you took up? What's Jesus doing here? He's cognitively reminding them, not only did you see me do it, but I used you in the work. Do you not remember? You action. You did it. You saw it. That's why Luke can say at the beginning of the book of Acts, these things are of a record that, give me a second, it's, I just want to read it to you in your hearing. Acts chapter 1, he's writing to Theophilus, and Luke says this. It's why he can say confidently, we lived with him. We saw him. We saw him work. 
Notice what Luke says, Acts chapter 1. He says, the former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive, this is after his resurrection, after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's why Luke can say with confidence, these things that I'm writing to you, O Theophilus, we saw, we heard, we lived. It's changed our life. That's why John can say in 1 John, the things that we have heard, have seen, have witnessed, and our hand. What is John doing? He's bringing in all the senses of the body. He's saying, I didn't just hear it. I heard it, and I didn't just see it. I heard it and saw it. I was able to touch him. I was able to be involved in his ministry. And that's what Jesus is calling to mind here in this correction. Oh, you of little faith, chapter 10, verse 8. Do you not remember the five loaves that you took up? Well, they remember, and they're going to pull on this memories and ministry experience for the rest of their days. He says, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Here we see in verses 8 through 11, I would add to this, the loving correction of Christ. Again, we see a passage here to where if we come with uninformed understanding about who Jesus is, we contend to construct him in a way that is sterile. We make Jesus into a way that is our own making. He only is nice. He's only nice. And we say that in a way to say, if he corrects, then that's not nice. The God of most people, the Jesus of most people, is one who never confronts but pampers. He's one who simply embraces. They know, they know the, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, but they don't like the, correction side of Jesus. And I just want to remind all of us, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects. It's a sign of love to confront and to correct when needed. It's not a sign, it's actually a sign of abuse to ignore and to pamper to the detriment of the body, soul, mind, and spirit. But see, our society, we have that in reverse order, don't we? No, if you truly love me, you'll accept me as I am. Whether or not it, it's for my flourishing, whether or not that's what God's design for me is, if you truly love me, you will do it on my terms. I just want to remind all of us, Jesus loves his disciples. John 6, John 10, no one's snatching them out of his hands. But yet, he corrects. Here, we would say, as we said before, Jesus doesn't sound very, excuse me, I'm not trying to be whatever, but Jesus-y. Here, he's different than the Jesus of modern culture. He rebukes them in love. So there's a deficiency we see here in this correction. There's a deficiency in their faith. Notice how he just tells it to the heart of the matter. Like a doctor, like a spiritual physician, he takes the scalpel and he goes straight for the heart. He says, oh, you of little faith. The problem, disciples, is that there is 
something deficient in your faith. You have a preoccupation with the now, the physical. You are ignorant of the spiritual. Or we could say you are immature. You're not hearing. You're not growing. Now, don't hear me to say that I'm painting Jesus as a irritated in a way that he's sitting in the flesh. That's not what we're saying at all. What we are saying is that he's confronting. Do you not, verse 9, do you not understand? Do you not remember? It's just a reminder to them and to us how prone we are. I don't understand this as God did surgery on me preparing for this text. I do not understand why I am so forgetful. God has done so many things in my life, and yet we forget them. It's a challenge for me is to write things down, to keep a journal between just me and the Lord, answered prayers, sovereign works, things that amaze, healings that have taken place. We pray for friends who are sick, and then they're healed, and we say, well, what a coincidence. The Lord, did you really do that? Yes, he did that. There are no coincidences. Behold the work of God in our lives and how he sustains and how he gives life, how he saves. If we could only see the spiritual realm, if we could only see reality as it really is, we wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning. We'd be so scared. How God protects, how he guides. And yet, we are prone to forget the tender mercies of God, aren't we? Go with me to Psalm 103 just briefly. This is a little bit of an example of what we mean. The tender mercies of God is just His gift to His disciples of existence. It's what gives us our song. It's what reminds us that we are the creature and He is the creator. That we are the clay and He is the potter. The psalmist gives praise to the Lord. This is the fuel of his song. I'm just going to read a few verses. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, I don't have anything to bless Him for. What do you, I can't do that, Legrand. Well, the psalmist is anticipating that. Notice what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies? Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? We're just going to hit pause there. So much more we could say. This is what we call the tender mercies of our God. Morning after morning, new mercies we see. It's of His mercies that we're not consumed. It's His mercies that He pours out upon our head. The wisdom literature, the proverb says that God stores up as if He's, he's waiting for... He, he not only, Psalm 103 gives us tender mercies every day, but it's, it's as if God is storing up storehouses of blessing and mercy for His children that He just gives at distinct periods of times right when we need them. It's a both and. And so we ask ourselves, then why do we, why do we struggle? I don't know. It's convicting. It rebukes us. It confronts us. I think all of us know that when we're exposed to the truth of who God is and the good news of the gospel and the reality of what is to come, we should never have another bad day the rest of our life if we truly believe what we say we believe. And yet we do struggle, don't we? Here we see that the Lord confronts. And we have no excuse for this, and yet we do. And yet He loves us. He will not abandon us. He will not abandon his disciples here. I want you to know there's a word for the religious Pharisees and the Sadducees who are hardened, who reject, 
There's a word Jesus has for them. There's a voice Jesus has for them. There's a tone Jesus has for them. And then there's also a frank directness, but it's different to those who are his spiritual children. It's firm. It's direct. It's loving. And yet he continues because he loves them. With these, he's turned his back on. The pastor, the father, in all realms of spiritual leadership, must have a voice for the wolves and a voice for the lambs, the sheep. The pastor must have a voice. And you say, well, how does he know where, when, and how? The Holy Spirit of God. How do you know when someone is a wolf and when someone is a struggling lamb? A bruised reed he shall not break, right? And neither shall his shepherds break. Well, we need the Spirit of God. I remember a man sat right back there one Sunday night. There was no intent to my message. It was not targeted like oh, the laser to him. We were preaching out of Jude. And we're talking about the warning against wolves among the flock. And he came up to talk to me afterwards. And we realized this was going to be a larger conversation. And so we went out, met up for coffee. And he was mad at the message. And I wasn't bothered by that. Um, anytime you preach, that's a casualty. That's a part of you know what to expect, right? And so he just said, I feel like you were preaching at me. And I feel like you were saying that I am a wolf. And I'm just sitting there listening to him and just kind of mesmerized, thinking like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I just laughed in his face. And, and I don't mean arrogantly or ugly. I just said, well, let me just ask you, are you a wolf? And he said, no, I'm not a wolf. And I said, so why are you offended? I, I didn't think you're a wolf. I'm not calling you a wolf. But obviously, the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you about something. Something that I don't know about. Brother, if you come to our church, and he wasn't familiar with our church's pattern, but I said, brother, we, 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 we start a book study, and we go verse by verse. And we see what the Word of God has to say. And so where we come next, there's no, all right, next Sunday, I'm going to give it to him. And next Sunday, I've got a message just for Jim Bob, and I'm going to give it. No, not at all. So, brother, that's not what we do here. If you just come consistently and faithfully, you'll just see next week, we go to the next verse. And by God's grace, is the application always perfect? No. The application is the frailest part of the message. I'll just tell you that. But the Lord helps us as we grow in His truth. And we confront. And we need discernment and wisdom to preach and to know how to guide and counsel as we're sharing the gospel. Who is someone who has a hardened heart? Well, it might be someone that you have shared the gospel with again and again and again. And now it's time for a decision. Now it's time for a verdict. And the Holy Spirit of God prompts you to, to urge them to say, listen, choose you this day whom you will serve, but you're on dangerous ground if you continue and you're halting between two opinions. First Kings 19, as Elijah told the children of Israel. Well, coming back to our text, Matthew 10, or Matthew 16, we see here there's a, a deficiency in their understanding. Verses 9 and 11, do you not yet understand? And then again, how is it? Jesus is, is kind of probing and guiding his disciples. How is it that you do not understand? You're hearing me in the sense of the physical realm. But I'm speaking in the spiritual realm. Christ loves them. And so he takes the time to teach yet again. To rebuke. To clarify. To reiterate. And to give guiding counsel so that these struggling lambs in the form of brawny men. But they're spiritual lambs. They're, they're young Spiritually, he takes the time to shepherd them, to feed them. I remember my college basketball coach one day could tell I was struggling. 
I just felt like he was on my case. I just, you know, and then you just you get into a mindset. And I think he sensed that. And he came up to me after practice one day. He said, LeGrand, let me just tell you something. He said, you need to be worried. I can tell you're frustrated that I'm constantly coaching you. He said, you don't need to be worried about that. That's a good sign. What you need to be worried about is the day I stop coaching you and just ignore you. He said, your days on this team will be numbered. And that was so helpful for me to, to understand that loving correction is not evil intended. Listen, I would tell you, parents and teachers and grandparents and people shepherding young ones today, you need to make that clarification often as much as you can because of the culture that we live in. You need to remind them that you love them and that you're doing what you're doing because you love them. And that if you didn't love them, you would leave them alone. Well, then lastly, number four, the clarification. Here we find in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This morning, we will not take the time to walk through the meaning of leaven here. We've done that. In the scriptures, it's used in different ways. The idea of talking about that which is done in secret, that which spreads, that which permeates. Jesus has already used this illustration of leaven in one of his parables that we looked extensively at, and that was one usage of it. Let's just get to the heart of what, what, what is Jesus saying here. Beware of their doctrine. It's secret. It's subtle. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus says the same phrase, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he, he tells us in that usage, what is, which is hypocrisy. The hypocrite was the play, the professional play actor, as we know. Back in the Greek and Roman times, they would set up these stages and these, they would play out these dramas, but without words. Everything was done through action and, 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 and the mass. And they would put on one mask and they would play act and they would do a whole play without words. Or at times they would use words, but everything centered around drama and tragedy. That's why the official sign of, if you go to a play, maybe you go to a, a play done here locally, you may see on the program or whatever, you see the two masks with ribbons, and one is a smiley face and one is a frowny face. It's, it's drama and, and, and tragedy, and it's they're working together, and it signifies the whole realm of human emotions. The play actor was one who was a hypocrite. Not bad, that's just what they were. They wore masks. But here Jesus says, what is the doctrine of the Pharisees? It is hypocrisy. So as we make some concluding thoughts, I want you to just stay with me for a few more moments here as we think about what is it that they are to be aware of? What was it that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, excuse me, the disciples are to be on guard against? That is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And how do we make application to the church today? Well, great question. Listen, let's just get right to the heart of what we do here as a New Testament church. The gospel is the engine that drives this church. Sound doctrine, the person and work of Christ Jesus our Lord, is the engine that drives this church. And what the leaven of the Pharisees is, is no, no, the gospel's not enough. You also have to, and then they take good things and make them ultimate things. The leaven of the Pharisees is you also must be here 
Tuesday at 7, Wednesday at 9, Thursday at 1, Saturday at 10. And all these things, if you do them and never miss, I'm talking about ministry and efforts and labor, they're just as, they, they are the gospel. Now, I just want you to think with me for a second. What does that create if we're not careful? That what I do saves. What I am sanctified by is what I'm resting in. My actions today draw me closer to Christ. My actions today make me more favorable in the eyes of God. If I do this, I can atone for the hidden sin in my life. If I just go and volunteer here and never miss, then God will be pleased to, to overlook this over here. It's, it's Phariseeism. It adds to the gospel instead of resting in the gospel. Come to Jesus and rest in Him. Rest, period. End of story. It is finished. And because of that, it's the joy of our life to love Him. Because of that, it's the joy of our life to be His disciple. It's because of that, it's the joy of our life to give the best years of our life, all of us, in every sphere of life, to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like our Savior, who was unrecognizable as he went to the cross, he was 33. We're trying to go polished and glowing into glory with a full tank. When friends... I'm not necessarily espousing the glories of being tired. Don't hear that, what I'm saying. But I think we need to be less concerned about being preserved and saying, Lord, how can you use me today? And it might be as simple as walking in, having a cup of coffee with your neighbor, and taking the inconvenience of your schedule and allowing the Holy Spirit to just erase that and say, Lord, you dictate my schedule. And I do this because I love you, because of what you've done for me. The gospel trumps Phariseeism because we can rest in the finished work of Christ. But then, there's so much more. I, I'm not even touching the, we're on the surface level of Phariseeism. There are beliefs, anything you add to the gospel, Jesus and Mary, that's Phariseeism. Jesus and prayer, that's Phariseeism. Jesus and you've got to pray it this many times, that's Phariseeism. Jesus and anything, Anything that you add to Christ in his finished work is Phariseeism. It's a, it's a generic statement, but that's just the heart of the matter. But also beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. The leaven of the Sadducees is subtraction, taking away. It's whittling like Thomas Jefferson getting out his, his little pen knife and coming to the scriptures. And it's with laser-like precision, just cutting out. And just taking out all that I don't like. But listen, I, I know you're not Thomas Jefferson. We don't have Thomas Jefferson's doing that this morning. By the way, you can go to the Library of Congress right now and see Jefferson's Bible that he edited and custom made himself. But there's a whole lot of Thomas Jefferson's. The reality is, is you just don't read what you don't like. You don't obey what you don't like. You've created your own Bible. You've created your own, reliefs, your own belief system. We give credence to it. But quite frankly... We don't like it or if it confronts, we just don't do it. I'll never forget my, between my junior and senior year of college doing an internship in England and being with a career missionary and we're standing side by side in a church. And what I'm about to say sounds judgmental. I don't mean it to sound judgmental. I just never heard something like this come out of 
somebody older than me's mouth, but at least he was honest. I can't remember what the song was, but I think it might have been something like I Surrender All, uh, something like that. And he just kind of turned to me, and this missionary was going through a very difficult time, returning home to the States due to a number of just difficulties, but he just said, I had to quit singing that song a long time ago because I can't sing it. Now, I, don't, I can't remember for sure if it was I Surrender All or whatever, but the point he was just saying is, is that I don't sing things like that because I can't. And I just remember thinking, that was weighty for me at the time to, to take in. And I just want to say this, as a pastor of this church, can I just give you some shepherding encouragement? Make a resolve in your heart that when you come to the Word of God, no matter how difficult it is, no matter whatever it is, that you say, Lord, I bow. I bow before your word. I bow before you on your throne. And while I may not understand this, will you teach me? I want to learn. But until that time comes, I bow and I worship the sovereign God. Lord, whatever you teach me, help me to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. Lord, help me not to be someone who hears and yet subtracts in my actions, in my everyday living. As Paul writes to Timothy in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Timothy, this is your job. Titus, this is your job to watch, to guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Titus, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those, notice here, of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. This is their effect. They subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Notice here, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So what is the task of the elder, the pastor-teacher? As we see Jesus' model and example here of shepherding the sheep, we'll conclude with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, the instruction to the church. We find here, both in what he says to Titus and Timothy, what the instructions are to the leaders, but also to the hearers. He says, Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What is in season and out of season? It's every season. It's comprehensive. He's saying at all times, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, work to convince the hearers to the word of God. Work to rebuke, exhort with all patience, with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, the doctrine of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But Timothy, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. So how do we, both the Timothy and the congregation, 
fulfill the ministry and beware of the leaven of the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Be on guard against anything that adds to or takes away, both in public ministry and in the hidden place of private devotion. To be faithful to the means of the Word of God because we want to. We hunger for it. We desire it. God's sheep desire His food, His Word. And as we grow and have a full diet of the truth, I'll just tell you this, you're not going to be deceived. To know the counterfeits, you must know the truth. And as you begin to see in your own life the, the, the whisper of the evil one, to try harder, to do more so that you can earn God's favor, friend, repent of that and mortify that. And get good Christian friends who strengthen the Lord to counsel your heart to rest in the finished work of Christ. It's the most, most beautiful word, maybe one of the most beautiful words in the English language, to rest. We need to hear that, don't we? Not only physically, but we need to rest spiritually so that we can then be freed to labor and serve our king. Friends, as we pray, or as I'm about to do, I'm going to go ahead and give you the benediction, and this is it. Rest in Christ, and then as we leave this place, even tonight, go serve your king. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your truth, your word. This morning, we've looked at a, a classroom lesson that is most important. It has profound effects even for us in the here and now in 2023 as we seek to be a faithful church to your word. Lord, I want to pray over our church and then pray for our church. First, Lord, I pray over our church that you will protect us from the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Lord, that we will simply take your word like a child and believe it, that we'll be used of you. Or that our faith would be pure, uncluttered. We will simply take it at your word and say, Lord, would you use us? We love you. We want to serve you and be faithful to you. Lord, would you do and bring about revival in our marriages, in our homes, in our church. Constantly be reforming us, reviving us. And then, Father, I want to pray over our church as we prepare to go out in your name. We pray that you would use us as the salt and light as we advance beyond the four walls of this room, Lord, this week we will be going into the workplace, the marketplace. Lord, in every sphere, would you help us to go serve our King, to be bold, be faithful. Even specifically tonight, Lord, would you use your shepherds, your saints, to go forth in your name to strengthen. We pray that the gospel would be given we pray that those who are elderly, Lord, and who are believers and yet are neglected, that we would encourage them, give them hope, remind them of their coming King, or that we would pray with them and share just the means of grace with them through your word. Lord, in every aspect, would you strengthen our church to be bold and faithful, full of the love of Christ, led of the Spirit of God, resting in the finished work of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.